two exhortations before we start. First off, to the ladies here today, uh, when we're all done today, your husband needs encouragement, not critiques. All right? Seriously, you need to encourage him more than critique him if you want to see him become all God wants him to be. And for the men, I want you to be challenged, not crushed. Because nothing I'm going to say today is beyond you and the Lord. And so that's what I want you to remember. And it seems clear that we're living in a time now of great evil and confusion. Uh, the pol political parties have never been so at odds on so many different issues. Things we would have all agreed upon not that long ago are now points of great disagreement, especially when it comes to issues of sex and marriage and gender. 20 years ago, everyone but a small handful of fringe academics believed there were only two genders and that every human being was born either male or female. That's now completely gone, and we are now in the midst of a culture war over what is gender, how many genders there are, and how old should people be before they are allowed to make drastic, life-altering decisions to change their genders. Such is the confusion recently that a, a woman nominated to our Supreme Court swore under oath that she couldn't define what a woman was. That should scare all of us, since the court will have to make rulings on laws that clearly define male and female and use the term woman liberally. And perhaps one of the greatest casualties in all this confusion is that men aren't sure what's expected of them in our society anymore. Seems like at times that the only marriage that's praised is gay marriage, and the only masculinity approved of is women trying to be men. Everywhere you look, masculinity is attacked as toxic, something that needs to be toned down or done away with. If you are a young man today, it's hard to know what society wants from you. Only just be sure they do not want you to be masculine. And thank God that when I was young, the only thing I had to worry about was it was still okay to open the door for my date. Okay? And if there was ever a time in which we needed to hear the clear biblical call to godly masculinity, it's our day. And if the church fails to take a stand on what true masculinity is, we are in deep trouble. And so in honor of Father's Day today, I want to spend some time on what God calls us to as men and as husbands and as fathers. Our society may be confused about what a man is, but God isn't. And he is calling for Christian men of this generation to rise up and take a stand for truth, no matter the attacks, no matter the criticisms, no matter the blowback. In a time of extraordinary evil, we must be willing to take an extraordinary stand against the tide of our culture and call men back to the truth of God's word. No society ever succeeded without true masculine men to lead it and protect it. So I want to start today with something my friend Steve Farrar stated about manhood, and then I want to dive into some Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy and Joshua that will flesh out what God is calling us to as men and as husbands, and as fathers. So I'm going to start with Steve Farrar's wisdom. And Steve Farrar was a great Christian man. He wrote a number of books for men, including Point Man, Anchor Man, Finishing Strong, and Manna. Uh, his books had the biggest impact on my life of anything I ever read as a young man. And it affected me as a man and a husband and as a father. And I had the privilege of working with Steve on two men's conferences years ago. And I've gotten to know, I got to know him really well over the next 25 years. And I spent some time with him at Hume Lake on several occasions when he spoke up there. 
And a few years ago, he did a series of messages for the men's group at Chuck Swindoll's church down in Texas based on 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when Paul instructs them to act like men. And I've sent those messages to a number of you here. And if any of you haven't heard them and you'd like to, let me know. I will send them to you. But one point Steve drove home was the five marks of a mature Christian man. And I always thought this was good. So here they are. First, finish your education, whatever it is. High school, college, job training, get it done. No nine-year bachelor degrees. Second, start your career. Get established in whatever it is you're going to do to support yourself. No wandering around for five years to find yourself or working 20 hours a week so you can have free time. Get serious about what you're going to do with your life. Build a strong work ethic. Do something that you will be able to provide it for a family with. Third, move out. At some point, you need to leave home and establish your own place. No woman wants to marry a 30-year-old guy living with his parents. Fourth, get married. Step up to the plate, find a godly woman, and make a real commitment. And I sense many young men today are commitment-phobic. And I know that not everyone has to get married, but most of us will, so don't shy away from it because it's scary. As I tell my grandkids all the time, a little scary is fun. <laughs> right? But make sure you are the kind of godly man that a godly woman will want to marry. And finally, have kids. It's up to each of us to take responsibility for raising the next generation of Christ followers. Kids are time-consuming, costly, messy, and amongst the greatest joys you will ever have. And so that's five, Steve Farrar's five marks of mature Christian man. If nothing else, some of you have something to shoot for. So I want to talk about Moses' call to fathers now. And I mentioned a few weeks ago at our members' communion that I spend the first part of every year reading large swaths of Scripture. Um, so in January, I read through all of Deuteronomy in three or four days. And what I like about that is that I can see connections between passages in that book that I wouldn't see if I read Deuteronomy in 34 days. That's a chapter a day. Okay. And if I ask you to tell me something you know about Deuteronomy... Some of you might be able to tell me that in chapter 5 is where we find the Ten Commandments, or that the Shema about one Lord and teaching our kids is in chapter 6, and you'd be right. And if you know more than that, then I'm impressed. And I won't push your knowledge of Deuteronomy beyond that right now. But what I recognize as I read through the book was a string of passages that deal with what would be required of Israel, especially its fathers, for the nation to enter into the promised land and experience God's blessing. And we often miss the main point. So what I want to do today is walk through those passages in Deuteronomy and make sure we get the main point right before we move on to what we usually talk about in those passages. And then we'll finish with some applications of all this from Joshua. And Deuteronomy, or the second law, was Moses' restatement with, uh, of God's covenant with Israel to a new generation as they prepared to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and they were about to realize their dream. But Moses wants to make sure they understood their covenant responsibilities before they cross. And in Deuteronomy, he lays out for Israel what God expected of them. So turn to Deuteronomy 4 
And we're going to start in verses 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 to 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done to the, in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. First and foremost, the children of Israel were to listen to the statutes and judgments that God had given them. That word for listen is shama, from which we get the word shema. And it has the idea of effective listening or, or obeying. And don't miss the fact that they weren't to add to God's word or to take away from it, but to fully obey it. They had just seen a vivid example of what happened to those who rejected God's commands and threw themselves into sin and judgment, judgment with the people of, who got involved in idolatry and immorality at Baal Peor. Those standing before Moses that day were those who had held fast to the Lord. And that theme of holding fast comes up repeatedly in Deuteronomy. But before they could teach anything to their kids, they had to be a people who listened effectively to God's commands and held on fast to the Lord, even in the face of temptation and provocation. They had to know God's word enough that they could tell when someone was adding to it or taking away from it. And we are told to hold tightly to God no matter what we face. We are to know when someone is adding to his word or taking away from it. I fear today in too many churches, people are being led astray by false teachers and they aren't even aware of it. And God forbid that that would happen to us. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not apart, depart from your heart all the days of your life, but you make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Part of that holding fast to the Lord was for the men of Israel to give heed to their own hearts and diligently watch over their souls. One major way to do that was in remembering the faithfulness of God and all they had seen God do over the years. They were to make sure to share those memories faithfully with their children and their grandchildren. And first, this verse goes right along with what Peter says when he warns us that we are to be alert because we have an adversary, the devil, who is seeking to devour us. It fits with what Paul says in his exhortation to Timothy to pay close attention to ourselves and our teaching because our salvation and the salvation of those we care about depends on it. A godly man has to be on high alert, knowing that if he is not careful, he could be deceived into something horrible that he will regret for the rest of his life. Assume that if you are not really, really careful, you could be really, really stupid. It's worked for me. Second, the reoccurring theme in Deuteronomy and Joshua is of telling our children and our grandchildren about the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. All of the feasts, the memorial stones we're going to look at later, all the ways God acted to lead Israel needed to be recalled and they needed to be shared on a regular basis so that the generations to follow would understand the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness of the God of their parents and their grandparents. 
We need to do that. Gentlemen, it's our job to share with our kids and grandkids who the God of our family is and all that he has done for us. It is our job to pass on the stories of his faithfulness to them and to show them by our lives that we are committed to staying faithful to God no matter what. It's not an accident that many on the left today are determined to destroy and remove any memory or reminder of our country's heroes and history. Destroy a people's history and institutional memory and you can remake them however you choose. We have to be the ones who pass on the spiritual legacy to succeeding generations. Now turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verses 1 to 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you <coughs> all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, listen, you should listen to and be careful to do that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. <coughs> and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We've all heard this passages a number of times, and there's so much in this passage that is rich and meaningful and powerful. Our problem is we always zero in on verses 7 to 9. Moses' command to teach our children the commandments of God and to talk of them when we're sitting in our house and when we're walking by the way and when we rise up and when we lay down. And as parents, we always zero in on that part of the passage, but we fail to grasp that teaching our kids is secondary to the main charge we have in these verses. It doesn't start with what we teach our kids. It starts with what we teach ourselves and what we practice ourselves. Go back through this passage and you discover that Moses states that, given this, that they, God has given these statutes and judgments to Israel so that the people of Israel might do them and that their children and their grandchildren might learn to fear the Lord and keep his statutes and commandments and prolong their days in the land. The blessings of seeking and following the Lord would flow to multiple generations of their descendants if God's people would be faithful to do what God commanded. In verse 3, their future prosperity in the land depended upon their care they took to obey God's laws. And in verse 5 and 6, Moses lays out for us what must happen before we can teach our children the word. First, in verse 5, they are commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. It begins with a deep lasting, life-changing passion for God in our hearts. We must live a worship-centered life. And we tend to understand with all our heart and all our soul, but that term for might actually means very or muchness. 
And the idea is a complete commitment to God of everything that we are. Gentlemen, if we want our children to be passionate about following and serving God, we have to be men who are passionate about our commitment to follow and serve our God. Our passion and our worship must drive our parenting. This is where everything begins in this passage. And then in verse 6, Moses reminds us that the wor- God's words must be on our heart. That is, they must become an active part of all that we are and all that we do. We have to bleed Bible. Our children must see and know by how we live our lives that we are anchored in God's word, and it is the priority of our lives. That doesn't mean we beat them over the head with Scripture, but it does mean we have to spend real time studying God's word and memorizing God's word and meditating on it. It is only when our hearts have been penetrated and shaped and tuned to God's word that we will be in a position to teach our children about the word of God. Men of God must be men of the book. And once we passionately committed ourselves to God and his worship, and we've let his word richly dwell within us, then we move on to the rest of the passage about being diligent to teach our kids when we are sitting around the house and walking by the way, and when we rise up and when we lie down. Trying to teach our kids to love and follow God when our hearts are passionless, our worship is routine, and our commitment is shallow, will be a fruitless exercise. Gentlemen, passion for God, passion for his worship and his word has to start with us and it has to fuel everything we do with our children. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 to 25. It says this, And when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do these testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which the Lord commanded you? Then you will say to your son, We were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. And moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out of there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. And so the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all that the Lord commanded before the, all, the, all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. When the day came and they were in the land and their children asked them, what are all these testimonies and statutes about? They were to tell them the history of God's faithfulness to them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. And if they would keep God's commandments, it would be for their good and their righteousness and lead to the blessing of the Lord. But it all starts with fathers who love the Lord and who love his word and who live it out and teach their kids. The example of parents, especially fathers, was crucial to the blessing of children. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. There we go. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, 
for your good. Here's the responsibility of the adults, especially the fathers in the community, to fear the Lord their God and to serve them with their whole heart and soul and to keep his commandments, which he has given them for their good. It is the fathers and mothers who have sold out for God and have given themselves completely to him that will be able to teach their kids about God and his commandments and impact their kids in a lasting way. The same is true for us and our children in our day. It's no secret what God requires of us, but to fear him and to love him and to serve him and to obey him. And as with Israel, all that God is asking us to do is for our good and for the good of our children. He wants to bless us and pour out his mercy and grace upon us and our children if only we will respond to him with passionate obedience. Turn over to Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 to 23. It says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as the frontals of your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord <coughs> swore to your, to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do, the, the, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive it. Okay. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. In another context of teaching our children about God and his faithful acts and his word, it begins with the exhortation of the children of Israel to impress God's word upon their hearts and on their soul and to imprint them deeply on their innermost being. They were told to hold on to them with all that is within them. The future blessings of their children and grandchildren depended on how well Israel placed the word of God deep into their hearts so that they could teach future generations. And the same thing's true for us. This is not a shallow read the daily bread while you're on the toilet kind of commitment. It is a wholehearted devotion to knowing and keeping God's commands of placing them deep into our heart and into our soul and letting them control our lives. Only when our lives, as well as our words, impact our children and grandchildren is when it comes deep out of what's inside us. Look at Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4. And if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall listen to his commandments and listen to his voice and serve him and cling to him. The instructions given in verse 4 are given in a context of what Israel was to do when faced with someone who came as a false prophet and was trying to lead them astray into the worship of other gods. And even if that prophet did miracles, if he tried to get them to follow other gods, they were to be rejected. 
And in the face of such temptation, they were to follow only the Lord and to fear him and to keep his commandments. They were to listen to the voice of the Lord and cling to him with everything that is within them. And that word cling means to hold on to someone with affection and loyalty. It's the same word used to how Adam is to cling to Eve. It means keep close. The Israelites were to hang on to God with affection and loyalty, even if others were advocating for them to follow other gods. How much more in our day and our age, when the pressures on the church to compromise its commitment to God and Scripture are growing, and we face growing opposition from our own government to reject God's commands and follow the perversion of the world. If ever there was a day for strong men of God to take a stand on the Word of God, it's our time and it's this day. The surest way to make sure our kids will cling to God out of affection and loyalty is for us to cling to Him out of affection and loyalty and reject the pressure to give in to the world. And I realize that all these words are written to all of God's people, but the main responsibility for ensuring them uh, that the family was anchored in God and His Word, that responsibility fell on the Father. They were to love God passionately, and they were to allow His Word to go deep into their hearts so that that family would be anchored on God. Fathers were to take the leadership. They were to be the ones that set the example for how the family was to live. They were to model in their own passion for God, their own deep commitment to His Word, and their courage to stand against the godless world and not give in, what it meant to be wholeheartedly worshiping God. And if ever there was a time for strong men to step forward in the church of God and do the same, it is now. The blessing of future generations depends on what we do. I want to talk about some application of this in Joshua. It shouldn't surprise us that when Moses died and Joshua had to take over leading the children of Israel, that the same principles that God had challenged the people of Israel with in Deuteronomy were at work in the life of Joshua. In fact, in God's instructions to Joshua at the start of his ministry, he repeated some of the very same principles he had given to the people through Moses. And I don't know how you would have felt being in Joshua's shoes, but you have to believe that following a legend is no easy job. And now everyone's eyes eyes were on him. Could he lead them? Would God be with him the way he had been with Moses? It's quite a position that Joshua is in. Look at Joshua 1, 6-9. Here we go. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As if anticipating all these questions that Joshua had, God gave Joshua clear instructions as he called him to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And several things jumped out at me as I read this. First, three times 
in four verses, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Three times. Do you think God knew what Joshua was struggling with? But rather than let him be overwhelmed by fear and doubt, Joshua was to be strong and courageous because his God was with him. The job might be big, but Joshua's God was bigger. And if Joshua was strong and courageous, God would use him to bring his people into the promised land. Listen, in our evil day, the call of God for men to step up and lead their families and his church is daunting. It's scary. And like Joshua, part of us is tempted to believe that the job is too big, our skills and courage too small. But like Joshua, God's exhortation to each one of us here today is to be strong and courageous. If God has asked us to lead our family, then God will be with us and God will grant us all we need to carry out his task. The time for small-souled men is over. His strength is our strength. His spirit is our courage. And if we will believe his promises, we can fulfill his task. Second, where does this strength and courage come from? It would come as Joshua gave his heart to the study and meditation of God's word and his obedience to it. To be strong and courageous in our God, we have to know who our God is that has called us. And the only way we can do that is to pour our heart and soul into knowing the word. Gentlemen, we're back to where we've been all through Deuteronomy, the call to be men of the book. The only way to lead our families through the hazards of our day is to be completely anchored in the eternal word of God. It was crucial for Joshua. It's crucial for us. And finally, God makes Joshua a great promise. If he will be strong and courageous, if he will be diligent to study and meditate and obey God's word, then Joshua would achieve success and lead Israel into prosperity. Prosperity. Notice twice God promises Joshua that he would have success if he's anchored in God's word and faithful to do what God asks. And that Hebrew word here is interesting, and it involves one of my favorite words in the Old Testament, sakal. And it has a compound meaning of both acting wisely and achieving success. It is used of David in 1 Samuel 18, 14 and 15 to describe the success he had leading his men into battle. He made wise decisions that led to the success of his soldiers. It is the ability to think through problems and choose the most practical way to resolve them and achieve success. But how do we become wise and gain the ability to make good decisions and achieve success? By being anchored in God's word and spending more time studying it and meditating on it and putting it into practice. It's amazing how much wiser we become and how much, be how much better decisions we make when we are men of the book. It was crucial for Joshua. It was cru it's crucial for us. Finally, turn to Joshua chapter 4. We're going to read verse 8 and then verses 19 to 24. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place, and they put them down there. Now verses 19 to 24. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? 
then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done at the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever." The moment of truth had come for Joshua as he led the people of Israel over the Jordan River and into the promised land. And God endorsed his leadership by drying up the waters of the Jordan, even as he had dried up the waters of the Red Sea before Moses. And don't miss God's instructions to Joshua that after they had crossed the river, each tribe sent a man back to the center of the riverbed to pick up one large stone and carry it to the place where they camped that night. And Joshua made a pile of these stones at Gilgal. And what were these stones for? They were memorial stones. And that pile of stones was to be a reminder of all that God had done for Israel in drying up the waters of the Jordan so the people could cross on dry land. They were, be, they were to be a reminder of God's power and faithfulness to his people. But these stones were also to be memorial stones for future generations. And in the future, when their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren would ask what these stones mean, they were to tell them the story of how God dried up the Jordan River before them so they could cross on dry land. They were to pass on the account of God's faithfulness and power to future generations who could then pass them on to future generations. Listen, we all have memorial stones in our lives, significant places where God did powerful works of grace and mercy and faithfulness. And my challenge to all of you today is to figure out where those places are for you and then mark those memorial stones and begin to share them with your children and your grandchildren. That is part of their spiritual heritage. And it moves our faith in God out of the realm of mere words and, it, and puts them in a context of real life. And for Carol and I, Hume Lake has always been that place where we have a number of memorial stones that God has done. And a few years ago, we took our kids around Hume Lake and we shared with them about some of the significant events God had done in our lives at Hume. We went to the tree near the Meadow Ranch Chapel where Carol had committed her life to Christ when she was in high school. It was at that very spot that her parents' faith became her faith. I took them to Victory Circle where two significant events occurred in our lives. First, in August of 1973, God called me into ministry and out of sports, which had always been huge for me up until then. But the direction of my life was forever changed after that. And second, Carol and I had our first date at Hume in August of 1976, and we finished that night sitting together at Victory Circle sharing a blanket. Seven weeks later, we were engaged, and six months later after that, we were married. That's a great memorial stone. There's the Hume Lake Volleyball Tournament, which I played in from 1978 to 2008. Um, and my sons grew up going up there with me, and they both played in the tournament. But you know what the best part of being in that tournament was? Was having my boys around godly men who were great athletes, who showed them that you could be both a fierce competitor and a committed Christian. That had an influence on my sons as they were growing up. And the climax was when my son Jeff and I won the whole tournament in, 19, in 2008 after 30 years of trying. <laughs> the Goosen Cabin. See, Carol and I started renting the Goosen Cabin for several years after we started having kids and we decided that camping with kids is not fun. 
And in the summer of 1983, yeah, some of you under already figured that out, huh? Summer of 1983, we rented a cabin for two weeks, and we were up there, and Carol was five months pregnant. But at the end of the first week, we realized something was seriously wrong, and Carol had her first miscarriage. But God used that time we had there the following week to help begin the healing process in our lives. And I can't drive by that cabin without thinking back to that week and the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God and the work he did in our lives up there. It's a memorial stone for us. And I think about my kids. Each of my kids has had God do something significant in their life at Hume. Uh, from Jeff working there nine summers and two years full time to Nathan leading his best friend to the Lord when they were both up there at junior high camp to Sarah meeting her future husband Gordon when they were up there working on summer staff. All of my kids have had God do significant things in their lives. And now we have the cabin. And now I have a chance after, you know, after 20 years of having this, of having the opportunity to share these memorial stones with my grandkids. And I got to do that last summer when I walked my dog down our street from our cabin. And my grandkids are with me and we walked by Victory Circle and I was able to point there and say, do you know what God did in our lives, in our family there? This is where God called Papa into ministry. This is where Grammy and Papa had their first date. That's their heritage. And I wanted to share that with them. Look, each of you has memorial stones, significant places where God has done important work in your life. Mark those down. Visit them whenever you have an opportunity so you remember the faithfulness of God. And then make it a priority to take your kids and your grandkids there and share with them what God has done in your life. That is part of their spiritual heritage, and they need to know it. And it's up to us to make sure that we pass on the greatness and the faithfulness of our God to generations to come so that the knowledge of God does not die out with us. Well, that's it. If I could summarize what I've been trying to say today, is that we have to, be, we, before we can teach something, we have to be something. Before we can pass on the truths of God's word to our kids and grandkids, we have to be passionate about our own faith in God, diligent to study and know his word. And most of all, we have to be living examples of godly, passionate Christ followers. Then our teaching of our kids and grandkids will come with power and influence and effect. So how should we respond to all this? Well, several ways. Number one, repent. I mean, if you're here today and you know you haven't been the man God wants you to be, your commitment's been shallow, your time in the word weak, your willingness to lead your family so-so, then you need to respond as we are always called to respond when we have not been what God wants us to be with repentance and confession and recommitment. It's never too late to start anew. Secondly, recommitment. Now is a great day to follow Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to him. Then we can renew our minds through his word so we can live lives that are pleasing to him. Repentance followed by recommitment is always a great place to start. Third, a bigger vision. One of the ways Satan takes advantage of us is by giving us a narrow vision of the world in our lives. If he can keep our focus just on us and no one else, we will fail to serve God as he wants. Ask God to give you eyes to see future generations, to see your children and your grandchildren and even your great-grandchildren and ask him for the grace and the vision to impact and influence them for eternity. 
Being a man and a husband and father who can lead their family effectively and influence them for eternity takes a vision to see beyond ourselves and our needs and our wants and to begin to see down through the generations to follow and to make their spirit, our spiritual heritage their spiritual heritage and to make that spiritual heritage a priority. You have to begin with the end in mind. If you want to see your grandchildren and great-grandchildren follow Christ faithfully, then it starts now by being a faithful man, a faithful husband, a faithful father. Start by asking God to help you speak into your children and grandchildren's lives in powerful ways. Ask him to help you lead a godly life so that you can set an example that speaks louder than your words. I would even encourage you to start praying now for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. You say, I don't have any. So what? Start now. If you're not praying for those future generations, who is? I started praying for my grandkids in the mid-90s, and I did not become a grandfather to 2010. Start now. You've got to have a bigger vision. God wants you to think of and see more than you have before. And finally, make a plan. There's an old sailing saying that I've heard, failing to plan is planning to fail. Take a hard look at your time in the Word and develop a plan that will deepen your time and your knowledge and your practice of it. Get on a reading plan. Change up what you do from time to time to keep it fresh. Set aside more time for the Word, even if that means you have to go to bed earlier so you can get up earlier. You can do this. I realized in seminary that I'd never read through the whole Bible, which is a terrible confession for a seminarian. So I made it a point starting then to read through the Bible every year. You need a plan for how you can read through Scripture and study it and make it practical in your life. Gentlemen, that's our assignment. This is the great task God has set before us. And the great news is, is that with God's calling comes God's equipping. His power, His grace, His Spirit are always available when we are passionate about our love and worship and obedience to Him. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. That's the promise we have from God. You know, back in the 90s, I went to a number of Promise Keeper conferences in L.A. Some of you older guys may have gone as well. There was a song they sang at one of them that really stood out to me, and it came back to me this week. And the bridge went like this. Rise up, the Lord is calling. Rise up, this is the day. Rise up and seize the moment. Rise up, O men of faith. Gentlemen, that's our challenge today, to rise up for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, it, it matters less whether we have been all that we need to be. What matters is what we are going forward. God, if, you, if we need to repent, I pray we repent. If we need to recommit, I pray we recommit. For those here who need a bigger vision to see the generations to follow and the impact they can have, give them a bigger vision. Lord, help us to be men who are sold out for you. May you raise up the men of this generation to stand strong for you, to pass on that legacy of faith to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.